winter. Hello and welcome to What We Do in the Winter. This is the 33rd episode in this series of podcasts, which normally come from the Isles of Mull, Iona, Alva and Gometra. Today, I'm chuffed to bits to say that this episode comes from the Isle of Tyree. I'm Alistair Satchel, I live outside of Dervig in the north of Mull, and I'll be your host today. That's my dog being sick in the background. <laughs> this episode is an interview with John Holiday of Tyree, also known as Doc Holiday, as he was the doctor on the island for 30 years. Originally from England, John lived in Australia before settling on Tyree. We talk about his work in Australia, the choice to come and live and work on Tyree, the nature of rural locations, his engagement with local Gaelic culture, the place names of the island, we touch on the history of the island, and finally we talk about the remarkable Ringing Stone, a feature of the island which has had 6,000 years of continuous human use. There's also a section in Gaelic in which we talk about the characters of the island that then leads us on to talk about place names. At a couple of points throughout the episode, you'll hear a tune that John wrote for his son called Michael John's Reel. I love this tune. I first heard it last year. It's a cracker to play. You'll hear John on the flute and the wonderful Martin Skeen on the accordion. I was across on Tyree to work at the Fish, which you can find out more about in the links on the webpage. We started our conversation at the beginning of Tuesday morning at the Fish, but as you'll hear, I was called away to deliver a filmmaking session. The conversation then resumed at the end of the day once everyone had gone home. Thank you very much to Tyree Fish for having me, and thank you to the school for letting us stay on to record this interview. I managed to record another episode on Tyree, which I'll try to put out next week. As ever, you can find the links and information on the website, whatwedointhewinter.com. And so, it is with great pleasure that I hand you over to the wonderful Dr John Holiday. Who are you? My name is John Holiday. I was the doctor here for 30 years. So where did you come from before you came to Tyree? I was living in Alice Springs or near in the Australian desert um, outside Alice Springs immediately before coming here. So I was a, I was the doctor for something called the Pintabee Homeland Health Service, which is an Aboriginal controlled health service in the Western Desert. So it's about eight hundred. It was five hundred miles uh, west of Alice Springs in the, de- in the de- central desert there. And is that project still going today? That's a very good question. I well, the people are still living there. I don't. They haven't got a doctor. They've, they must have a health service, um, but it's been centralised with visiting visiting doctors. So um, I don't know, to be honest. What took you to Alice Springs? Why did you choose to go there and work with Aboriginal people? What was the, the impetus from, was that your first post or was that second or? No, I, I wanted to work uh, for the Aboriginal people really since I was, uh, well, for years and years. I, I went to Australia when I had left school for a year, did a gap year in um, Australia and I worked there picking peaches and I travelled huh. to Alice Springs, probably, this was the 1970s, so um, things were much less developed than they are now. And I went to um, Uluru, mm. uh, what used to be called Ayers Rock, and I, I met some, I met, I sort of saw Aboriginal people, I talked to a few of them sort of briefly, and that, that landscape really excited me and I thought, well, this is really uh, this is going to be my life's work. I'll, I'll go to the Western Desert, be an Aboriginal doctor. So I, I did my training and sort of worked towards that. Um, and so once I'd done all my qualifications, I went out there to work for the for the Pintabee. So I'd done my research. I mean, I wanted to work for an Aboriginal-controlled health service, which was a relatively new thing then. It was the money was obviously came from the central government, but there, there was a committee of Aboriginal people who controlled it. There was an Aboriginal um, healer who was paid as part of the health service and so wow. I worked alongside him. That's awesome. So what was it about the first encounter with Aboriginal culture that made you go, yes, this is it? What was it that, that, that struck up a resonant note with yourself? I don't really know. I mean, I, I, had, a, I had a very standard upbringing. Uh, you can probably tell from my f- accent that I, I, I came from suburban England, really. Yeah. And I had a a longing for something different, something st- 
stronger, something mm-hmm. more um, adventurous, but also something more, something with a deeper tradition behind it. And um, I became very interested in hunter-gatherer way of life, sort of pre-industrial way of life. And so the Aboriginal people of Australia were you know, one of the last uh, peoples that really had that. And the people in the centre of Australia um, certainly certainly had that. And when I, just before I went, there was some, what they call the bush mob, there were eight people who came in from the desert for the first time oh. who'd um, really effectively, they'd seen white people from a distance, but they'd never been really in contact with them. So I, wow. um, I was looking after them, and there was said to be still. In fact, there may still be some people who are living in the desert still, but I don't know whether that's true still or not. But certainly, there were people. I mean, uh, Chapel Daddy, who was uh, who was the Aboriginal healer who I worked with, who was yeah. probably fifty when I first went out there. He he he'd been born in the desert pre-contact and he came in when he was about 15 or so so um, essentially he all his formative years have been brought up pre, pre-contact pre with white people so he, he was as many people in that particular tribe were they were they were very um, their, their original culture was quite intact their links to the country were intact although they'd yeah. been settled for about 20 years by the time I, I arrived <laughs> One of the things you mentioned uh, when we were talking earlier was about the, the the native Aboriginal healers. First, he would he had met uh, white people for the first time at the age of was it fifteen or something? You said, did he ever tell you what that experience was like? He didn't know. I've seen pictures of him in the desert before. Well, when the person who brought him in met him for the first time, and he was um, with his spear and. Uh, um, he's naked, as far as I remember. It's, it's a very proud-looking Aboriginal person with a with a sort of beard. Um, wow. But he didn't. I mean, he, I did, my Pinterby was pretty basic, and his English was very, very basic. So I mean, we didn't talk a lot about um, the sort of emotional side of life. But I, I what what attracted me particularly to that health service was that he was employed and he came into the came to work every day and if someone came in he would be right there in fact he usually saw the well, saw all the patients first uh, and um, and then I was allowed to have a look and we both usually did our bit and did our healing rituals and uh, so what were what were the Aboriginal healing ritual rituals that you, are you able to say? Are you allowed to say? Um, was that something oh, yeah. that was contained within? Because I know that like the songs of the Dreamtime songs are are limited. You can't speak about yeah, them. They're very protective about things that are, you, if if you're not initiated, obviously you can't. You, you'll never hear anything, or they they will say things very elliptically, so you don't understand it. But uh, the uh, there were, as I understood it, really, there were a couple of. Uh, Things. First is this: people's spirit could disap- could they could leave their body. That was quite common. They would wake up in the morning and they felt lifeless, and very often their spirit had flown away during the night, and he had to go and find it and bring it back, and then he would put it back, usually through their navel, their belly button, and then he would sort of seal it in with a sort of motion of his hand. Um, so that was one quite common thing. I, I wasn't really so involved in that, um, but. People who had pain or an illness or diarrhea, something he would usually suck something out of their body. So, yeah, I mean, I had this done several times. But if if someone had a sore head, he would usually, you know, they'd be, they were talking for a long time. Then he put his hands on their head, and then he would say, um, "There's something in there. I need to get it out." And he would put his lips to the temple, maybe, and and suck for quite a long time, maybe three or four minutes, and and then he would get me to get. Uh, usually an old Frey Bentos tin, that was a commonest thing. He said, forget some water because I've got to neutralise this, is, this is poison. So he would then spit out a, a piece of glass and a lot of blood would come out. Um, and then he would show that around to people and 
Um, often this was at night time of flickering firelight and uh, so it was, a, it was a very impressive um, performance and he did it on me several times. And now I had, a, I had a sore throat for example, I got pictures at home and he he, he sucked at the side of my throat and I got a big bruise where he did it and he he produced, I still got it, it was a, a broken end of a plastic comb that he sucked out of my throat and um, so he, he was a he, he was a great I, I mean he was a he was a rascal in some ways I mean he he, <laughs> he, he was I'm mean, not in his not that he wasn't genuine in his healing because he, oh, yeah. he was he was a, a genuine real healer. thing but yeah. he he was I say a rascal but he, he was often he wanted to borrow he wanted money from me he's always saying John forty dollars that was his comment that was usually his opening remark in the morning so he usually wanted something from me but uh, I I really liked him actually and it was a I don't suppose there are very many places where you know a young white doctor could work with a a real traditional ritual doctor yeah. yeah and being paid side by side I mean that was that was pretty pretty special so I I learned a lot from him. It was an incredibly enriching experience. I mean, I'm sure I was a better doctor as, as a result. And in terms of those conditions that people had, such as my spirit leaving me, is there a cognate kind of thing in how we see medicine? Would that be like something like a vitamin D deficiency or something like that? Or was it a culturally specific thing? You know, like how the uh, the Italian people have a colpo dario. You know, I've got a I've got a lump of cold air. I get hit by a cold air draft, which we wouldn't say in English so much, but might mean something else. Or was it just specific to that worldview? Yeah, I suppose it's it's specific to a cosmology where you have a where you have a spirit i mean i suppose a lot of yes. people have that i mean it's quite it's you know i think probably you know chronic fatigue syndrome or there are people there are um you know it's quite common to people to feel weak sometimes it's a it's a mineral deficiency but sometimes it's a much more complicated thing than that so i think it has parallels in all human beings react in fundamentally the same way, but yeah. our cultures um, colour the way that, that that presents. That's a fascinating topic in itself. Yeah, how the psychology of the ill person per culture, that's really, really interesting. We'll maybe come back to that in a moment when we come to talk about Tyree and the nature of, of, of what you've seen in Tyree and the experience here. So how long did you spend in Australia? I mean, it sounds like 20 years. In fact, it was a year and I... Some of that I was ill. I mean, I had, I had hepatitis and I was pretty, pretty ill for a couple of months. But essentially, after a year, we were pretty tired. I mean, we were living in a caravan. It was 50 degrees centigrade. There were flies everywhere. No one spoke English. Um, it was a difficult place to work. I mean, a lot of illness people had. Yeah. People living, I mean, towards the end, they had houses. But, but when we first went there, we were living in, most of them were living in Humpets, which is a a corrugated iron. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, we—you'd call them a pigsty. I mean, there was yeah. there was that's how they looked like. There was a, a very low roofed corrugated iron, and, and and there was I think one possibly even just one tap for a thousand people. I mean, it was the almost there were no toilets. There were you know the the con- living conditions were really difficult. It was a it was an outstation that people had gone back to, as it were. So they it was a it was a. The Pintu people had come back to their country, and they were making a political statement by doing that. And the yeah. their movement, their re-immigration had gone before the infrastructure. So, that for a long time, they were living in quite difficult conditions. And we were there in year two, and um, so the, the Aboriginal people themselves, most of them, over, over half of them, were living in, in very difficult conditions to keep any sort of you know, clean and clean and healthy, and the food they couldn't afford much so they were eating a lot of processed food and um which their met- metabolism was particularly unsuited to so it was um, the, a lot of people were pretty pretty ill and, and so working there and plus we were a long way from hospitals i mean we, we were using the flying doctor service to evacuate people so it was, it was a an hour and a half flight even with a you know turbo prop so it was um we were quite isolated in that way so working as a doctor was, was pretty tough and after a year we thought we'd come back to Britain and um, just uh, get our energies back 
really intending at that stage to go back, but it, it was really, um, it was, we thought when we came back, it was going to be too much of a, quite too, too difficult a place to commit oneself, you know, for a long spell. And I was looking for a place to settle down. And so when the Tyree job came up, we both thought it was, uh, had a lot of similarities to, to Kintore where we were in Australia. It was, it was, you know, isolated, a very strong local culture and a doctor working a long way from anywhere. So you're having to be pretty self-reliant. So although climatically it's very different, it was, it, was, <laughs> it had, it was actually, it tasted very similar to, to Kintore and we really never looked back. So we've been here 33 years. And is your wife a doctor as well? No, she was. She worked in a local authority in, in London. So um, she, she worked in a clinic in Australia and she's worked in a clinic here, but as a sort of administration. And were you the only doctor for those thousand people? Oh, yeah. yeah there's, I mean, my, I always like to say my practice was the size of Germany. It was, it was just huge. There were doctors in Alice Springs and, there, and some of the uh, some of the places had... Um, had doctors, but you know, the nearest doctor to me was probably 500 miles away, something like that. It's a lot so, of responsibility, yeah. Which I, I like. Yes, yes. And yeah. um, so then, in terms of where you come from yourself, what? Where were your parents from? Going back, um, I said I come from suburban uh, Essex and Norfolk. I mean, my 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 dad's family comes from Shetland. Oh, really? Originally, and, and then they emigrated to Newcastle. And my mum's family comes from Cornwall and the Channel Islands, a sort of a, a mixture, London. So I, I didn't have any particular rootedness anywhere. But I went to university down, down south, and I knew that I wanted to work in general practice, and I knew I wanted to work somewhere vivid and um, a long way away from anywhere. That's where I'm sort of happiest. Uh, how did you find that when you were younger? What was it about growing up in the south of, of England that made you go, nah, this I want to, as you, I think you said earlier, and want more flavour? What what was it about that kind of growing up at that time? Because that was, you know, that's the 60s, isn't it? It's pretty, the most spicy that British culture has been for a long time. Well, that's true, yes. I mean, there was absolutely nothing about my young life that was... I don't remember ever being unhappy with, with with that side of it. I think it really hit me when I was at, and probably when I went to Alice Springs. I mean, that, that sort of window onto another world. I remember coming back at the age of 18, you know, absolutely besotted with hunter-gatherers and anthropology. And that's what I really wanted I mean, I didn't do medicine when I first. Uh, I did medicine later on. I was a scientist originally. Really? But I um, then I changed to medicine, and so I don't know. It's not a question. I think it was probably as a as a fairly you know a fairly young man that I began to crave that sort of a bit more chilly in my dish. Um, indeed. <laughs> Fantastic. And do you still keep a connection with Shetland at all to these days? Yeah, well, I, I only discovered my Shetland collection, connection quite recently, but I've, I've been there a lot and I've, I've worked up there too and I, I, I really like Shetland. I mean, it, it's, to some extent, we choose our ancestors that we um, yes. emphasise. I mean, there are certain, exactly, there's yes. plenty of um, um, people in my family who whose lives I haven't celebrated quite as much, but my great-great-great-grandfather who comes from the West Mainland in, in Shetland, you know, I've, I've spent a lot of time sort of identifying to some extent with him. That's the sort of landscape I'm, I'm happiest in. And so I, um, I'm very sorry all my other great-great-great-grandfathers, but I've rather, I've rather neglected them. I think landscapes of sky, like, I don't mean the island of sky, the landscapes with sky in them are yep. what are common to Shetland and here in Tyree as well. These kind yep. of big, big skies. And also, of course, Australia has big skies as mm. well. Um, yeah. I mean, what really attracts me, talking about landscapes, is inhospitableness. I mean, I like places where it's very difficult to live. So deserts, deserts are nice, mountaintops are nice, uh, places 
hundreds of miles to the nearest village, a, a nice, you know, seas, raging seas, tiny islands, anywhere where you can hardly imagine life clinging to. That's that's what really excites me. I mean, Tyree is pretty subtle place. I mean, like, there yeah. are times when the wind blows when you think, ah, oh, this is a real island. I'm, I'm, this is good. Some of the times it's it's obviously much more compliant place. Uh, you know, Mull obviously is sort of bigger again, but yeah. um, I I like um, a tiny, you know, lighthouses that I love. I would have been a very happy lighthouse keeper. Could you not do that? Yes. <laughs> I was, like, in many ways, I was born 100 years too late. But. <sighs> When you're in Australia, you talk about we. Who do, you, who do you mean by the other person in or other people in we? Yeah, well, Claire, my wife, we, we met in London and she she, she came to Australia. Wow. And we had, and Michael was born in Alice Springs. Right. And so we had a you know, tiny baby and a young family Gosh. in this baking hot caravan. It was pretty, it, was, it wasn't a healthy place to bring up children it was it was a place it would be a very difficult place to live for 30 or 40 years and how did you meet claire she i met her on a on a march actually against or for something again well it's it was the cnd march march as i remember i'm got a very good memory but some things are quite hazy um but I was selling something called Native People's News, which was a paper for Indigenous people, and it was a, um, a CND march, and uh, she she was a friend of a friend, so that's how we met. And how long had you been together before you moved out to Australia? It's mm, a good question. Maybe four years, something like that. Yep. Too quite secure. <laughs> oh, yes. It wasn't just a month before. No. Morning. <laughs> Gosh, Phil. And so you go from uh, Australia back to the UK. Did you go straight to back down to the south when you came back from Australia? Or yeah, where? Claire had some maternity leave to work in Lambeth, so we did that for a couple of months. And then this job came up, and you know, in those days, you actually had to compete for jobs. There were quite there were yeah. eight eight applicants for the Tyree job, so I I came up to Paisley for one of my only interviews in my life, and so I had to sort of I had to fight quite hard for the job. But the fact I worked on my own, the fact that Claire had also been in an isolated place, the fact that I'd I'd written a, a report of my years' work with well, of statistics and things, so I, I think people felt that I would be able to cope out here, and I had a sort of vision for the practice or how I was able to document my my work in a sort of scientific way was seemed to go in my favour. 30 years on from that here you, well 30 years of practice and how many years you've been retired now is it for? Yes maybe three years or so two two or three years yeah I worked in Mull and Cole yeah. after I retired here. But... So that's a that's a long time so what is it about Tyree? We talked about the sense of isolation being on the edge. What is the unique characters of Tyree or character of Tyree that's made you go, this is it, this is where I want to be? Yeah, I think it was, the word unique is, is an interesting one. I mean, I, I, Tyree, obviously, every island is different. Yeah. Um, is Tyree unique? I mean, I, I, I think it's... There are a number of things that make it a nice place to live. It's um, for me, it's wild. Yeah. Sometimes it's life on Tyree. It's wild. It's hard. Yeah. Um, and you have to plan, and yeah. you, so making a living—I don't mean in, in um, earning money, but sort of planning of food and everything you need has got to—you've got to work, you know, quite a lot harder for it. So that's. I enjoy that challenge. Um, I, it's to me, it's a really nice size to live. I, mm. I worked on Coll, which is two hundred people or so 
And that's, I, you know, the, usually the smaller the arm, the more interesting it is, because everyone is, it, the smaller the pressure cooker is and the higher the pressure and the temperature inside, it's, it's, it's much, if you want vividness, <laughs> a small island is more vivid and a larger island is more dispersed and you don't really yeah. get that. Um, so I do like small communities, but living in a small community is really difficult. Uh, and Especially uh, in a role like being a doctor as well. I imagine yeah, that's tricky. I mean, you, to maintain your sort of diplomatic links with everybody is really... How do you how do you do it? Do you do you have to withdraw partly from things because you're you've I've known you what a couple of years now and you're very much core part of the community. You're part of how how are you able to maintain that role but also have the professional distance of the local doctor? You've got to have your finger up someone's bum two days later on. How do you how do you, how do you manage that? It's not quite the way I put it, but I <laughs> understand what you mean. <laughs> that's that's the balance. I mean, lots of people before me have done the same thing, and uh, you, you you choose your own way of doing it. I mean, I, I've I, I suppose I'm lucky. I'm pretty diplomatic. Um, I it's a guilty secret. But I was sent away to private school when I was nine, and so that makes you emotionally very self reliant and mm. rather withdrawn. Yeah. Um, I. You know, I don't. I wouldn't recommend anyone did that. But I, it had an effect on me that I was able to. You know, I always say I haven't got any friends. I mean, I, I don't. I have a lot of people that I know well. I love human beings, mm. but I, I'm not close to very. I'm not close to any of them really. I mean, I'm. I am fundamentally a very secret, private sort of person. So I, I, I never needed that sort of company. But on the on the other. Hand that's compensated for by, by everyone was my friend really. I mean, I, yeah. I mean, not everyone liked me as a doctor. I'm sure it was, mm. um, you can't, no, you can't please everybody. Yeah. I suppose I love. I'm fascinated by human beings. I'm, I'm really passionate, passionate about people. I love going to London and sitting on the tube and yeah. just watching people. I'm, a, I'm a human addict, um, and um, so it's, it's endlessly interesting living in a in a very small place when you've. You know, everybody and every relationship in that, you know, thousands of relationships within that community, uh, almost millions of relationships, there's almost a thousand people here. I mean, mm-hmm. so there's a, there's a lot going on. So there's plenty, if you're interested in that side of things, then there's plenty to keep you going. But fundamentally, I, I was, you know, I'm a great, I'm, I'm very committed to Tyree as a place. And you ask what makes Tyree unique. I mean, I like it, but I've, Essentially, it's where I settled and where I made yeah. my home and where I've committed myself. And it, um, in, a, in a, wherever I hefted as a sheep farmer would say that that's where I will do my best to make it a, a you know happy and successful community. And to me, that one of the most important things was um, building people's sense of sort of spirit. Or I say building. I mean, there's plenty of spirit. Yeah. But I was very interested in making it more cohesive and yeah um happier and uh, more successful so i mean sort of building structures and organizations but also trying to do things that will make people identify even more strongly with a place so it's it's a it's a, it's a strong community and tari in many ways it is very strong community but it, there are some aspects that are, that do need you work on it still, so yeah. there was plenty of work to do to 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 make the community a you know, stronger stronger one. And that's really what I to swing you to to heal itself to be um, resilient. Yeah. So that's why I've been happy here. Yeah, uh, we're talking about a small community. One one of the things that's slightly better about a, a bigger community. Um, I always think Tari is a Goldilocks island. It's not too small. It's not too big. It's just the right size. Because if you if you do fall out with somebody, you, you can disappear just, a bit. You can just walk walk back a bit. There's always plenty of other groups to join. There's someone called Robin Dunbar, who's a who's an anthropologist, is at Oxford University. But he he brought the idea of the Dunbar group, which is that human beings can really have got capacity to have about 150 relationships, and that's about all. That's the that's what our brain size limits, and so. Uh, in that way, Tyree has got about four or five Dunbar groups, people who are sort of 
generally identify with each other's. Um, and if you get kicked out of one, there's another one. Whereas on coal, um, yeah, if you get kicked out of one group, there's not, you know, there might be one other small group to go to. But Tyree, there's plenty of capacity to to slip from one one area. If, 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 if Venn diagrams of intersection. Yes, if conflict arises, you you just back off and go somewhere else and you can't do that in a very small place um, so to me Tyree's been a quite a um, an easy place to live from that point of view and in terms of the communities of Tyree how distinct are the village communities from each other would you say or is it safe to say <laughs> yeah it's quite safe to say I mean they they, they don't really exist I don't think I mean okay. I, that, I mean that's a, they would have existed before the second world war um, yeah. I, I think um, and essentially, once people could drive up and down the place, which really started, I suppose, in the, for many people in the sixties and seventies, yeah. then then people could start to select. They they made contact with their fa- family in other parts of the island, and they established friendship groups that went beyond the village. And so that the crofting township as the sort of social unit became yeah. became less important. So. It would have been very. I mean, certainly, it's true that certain villages in Tyree had had a different accent or different words. And that I've often heard Fantastic. the old people saying, you know, that's a Balamartin word or yeah. that's a Curlis word. We don't say that here. And so, people, even within the Tyree dialect, there were differences that you could um, you could tell that that's not. You know, I don't think that's true at all any, any longer. Yeah. Although, generally speaking, that there is still. A little frisson between the east and the west end. I don't know what if that's the same on on Mal, but you know the, they, there are two. The east end is is kind of smaller, but there's a feeling that they are. There's a difference and there's a there's a rivalry, although it's the great, well, a very strong aspect of living on a, in a small place is you you mustn't express your conflict at all. I mean, there's no, no. You, you don't. It's almost impossible to be angry. On, on Tyria, that's impossible. We're all angry all yeah, the time. Of course, yeah. You don't. It's very um, difficult to fr- manifest. Frowned on to yeah. to express it. I think as as an outsider, which I am, you can see that there is a there is conflict in the east and west end, which goes back you know hundred years or probably longer than that. So it's not it's not it's not homogenous the island, but it is quite complicated. Is the 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 crofting township as a place that people identify with is, is is not nearly as strong as it used to be. And you've brought up two Tirischeikh as well. Michael and Sarah, is that right? Yeah. And how do they feel about their relationship with home? Because now Michael's a successful architect now, is that right? Yeah, he's living in Washington, D.C. and in America. And um, Sarah's living in Peckham in, in London. What does Sarah do for him? She was a research chemist and now she's changed direction. She's an um, environmental activist or something. She's a fine musician as well, wasn't she? She plays, plays a fiddle, yep. Right. So they were both, I mean, Michael was one when he came here, but they both went to school here. They went to the Gallic unit, so they are Tyree, yeah. born and bred, essentially, although they've gone to live elsewhere. And I know it's difficult to put words into other people's mouths, but how would you say they feel about their relationship with Tyree as home as now? Are they, is it somewhere that they always think they'll come back to or is it somewhere that is and just informs where they come from and is part of their onward journey? How, what, what, what have they said to you about it themselves? Yeah, I think, well, Michael lived here for, Michael lived and set up his business here for, for quite, quite a few years and I think he's probably got stronger He's more comfortable coming back. Sarah, Sarah's very happy in London, and although she's, you know, she's a good Gaelic speaker and she plays fiddle and Scottish music, but she's very much adopted to London, London life. So, London you know, I don't think she'd be coming back to Tyree to live, you know, very soon. But, they're, but, they're, but as you say, they they were both rooted here. That's where the, that's where the that's where the tree was grown. They'd just gone and um, lived in another forest. That's all. What was your first encounter with the culture of Tyree, whether that be Gaelic? And what were your first impressions? I wasn't naive when I came here. I'd, I'd been living in with Aboriginal people. I'd learnt Pintabi, as, as well as you could expect after a year. And I, yes. I was consulting in Pintabi, and I understood utterly that if you want to... Firstly, that I was very 
although I can I can never be part of Tyree. I can never be never be. That's not fair to say, but you know, I'm I'm quite comfortable with my position as an outsider. But I wanted to understand it, and I wanted to get inside the culture. And you can only do that through through the language. And um, so I came here, you know, determined from day one to learn Gaelic. Fantastic. And um, I enrolled in night school as a wonderful teacher, Maggie. Mackay, who taught me, and um, then I just bashed away with cassette tapes in these days. Teach yourself Gaelic and Canshaw. Indeed. Um, <laughs> and just played them to death in the car and went through all the normal textbooks. And it took, took me ages. I, mean, I don't think I'm a natural linguist, but I'm a, I'm a musician, so I mean, I, I can, I can, my accent's quite good. I can hear things. And my Marihoni, my, my receptionist, was, you know, she spoke to me Gaelic right from the beginning and so there were there were a lot of older people who wanted me to stay wanted me to be you know as as to understand them as much as possible so they were they they didn't have to try very hard with me but they were I certainly had a lot of help so it it wasn't uh, it was pretty organic in the sense that at that time people did speak people coming into the surgery in the afternoon when Marius on duty would most of them would speak Gaelic or a good proportion of them would speak Gaelic to Marius and um, so I'll be hearing it quite a lot mm-hmm. and as soon as I became semi-fluent there were quite a few of them really did promote it and they would speak to me in Gaelic almost all the time so were you consulting in Gaelic as well, well? absolutely yeah <gasps> yeah I mean that's wonderful <laughs> it's not I don't know how brilliantly I was doing it. I mean, they. That's <laughs> what, <laughs> it was. Quite, it's bad, it was quite as bad as that, but it's certainly. <laughs> it, I'm, I'm much more fluent in English than I'm in Gaelic, mean, yeah. so it would, it, I wasn't as good a doctor in Gaelic. But oh, they chose the language. Yeah. So that's a, that was a pretty good way to to learn it, and I, I should be better than I am. But there's probably less. I don't speak it as much as I used to because I'm 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 not amongst people being being retired and um you do get a bit lazy and um you have to work a bit harder at my Gaelic sort of become you know, a bit more fluent. But Aye. Um, I I I mean I always say I'm not fluent. People say oh he's got a very good Gaelic but I, essentially I can I can I could live in a Gaelic society completely happily and he wouldn't. I'd be completely fluent in a few weeks' time. Ah, yeah. Shouldn't shouldn't it's doctor. Um Marahil imperative on your son Gaelic and 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 uh fluency. I mean Spoon Shin. So Kashanok bring Shin Galakirsh and Minichnaga, Jirakirsh and um uh flavor ela, who else a podcast is Minichnaga. Blasela. Um so Jimmy Jimmy Nina na character and Nura Hanakuku in Hidak. Kova na character and moor. Kova animal on Iranian. Ancient of Hahan character, I guess. No, Hanye had no character in Hanye Hopalch survived. Not a farmy and Toshach for who more on you, Kuyu for Barak Achka, and Shin the reason for bad, Og, but Haro Bill Ho consuls a high in Gerstach, the Latin and Jew. So, I mean, Smoing and Beach, Anson the Latin, Shutuch, Va Huladunia, a Goper, and a Kruaja, Gamegate, a Goper, Conler, Va Anadoi, Ha, Shinia, Latin and Jew, Nesleskila. I guess good job. So, no, the Vamish is a stoic and the cheek and Toshach va va more in your ass gummy also harboring also bring guminachach co cova on ach va va vat aving, I guess gleek, I guess va shenachas muavasachacha. Yeah. Um, 
Yolas ir an kultur. Shine. Nur va mishe stay in tashach va mi va ui akam as na na hanimanache. Yeah, shin Doris can can. Shine. Va mis munyu nach nachro dunisim be ka krunyuk. So va mi um va fortigliar ma liche va domgust a bring this va mi jin of consultant association va va chim Gutrich, Kuyuva, Univor, Prima Yang, Gorinkan, Akonik, and Karachakam, and the Can of Anarmaica, and Seattle. I guess Sanahianisha, I guess Balanoa, and I had Chelloch, I guess by Esna bring the Maggie, Aunt Akia, for America, Chipperhand Docht, I Ur. Oh, he's very nice, but he stays a long time speaking Gaelic after he's done his consultation. <laughs> yeah, I guess Shinna Root Vami Vami or Fai Hol Fudista, um, if he bring, I guess, um, my I'm saying Hanimikinch or Cavell na Clary in the records pipe at Alan Hast, who was who again knew at a computer, Vami Erin Turv. Er a cool of an electric and that's answer answer no deacon. I'm his family screaming hooligan for me against you. Because Gasonich and the Hanuman Archer, so I'm the smoking my dollar staking records. So shelting and last screamy. I can feel the doctor. Yeah, well, Shin Stock Gun Brain me in a can, I guess, any manacha. But so, what are the what for you have been the most interesting and revealing place names of, of Tairi that you've discovered? I didn't really know what I was letting myself in for. I, I, I wanted a project, I suppose, and I for some reason, place names really, I suppose they are, I'm, I'm interested in landscape and, I'm, yeah. and the human beings in a landscape. So when a shepherd said oh, that rock is called Craig Nafala, something the mm-hmm. rock of blood, that made that bit of the landscape, you know, talk about vividness, I mean, yeah. it made, made, it, made it alive. So why that, was it called that? Uh, well, this one entire it's in Curlis, and I think it's probably where cattle were bled uh, in the winter time, as um, like the Maasai do today. That yeah. When people were hungry, they they bled their cattle, and that was um, I think that's probably where that comes from. So the place names, a lot of them are fairly bland, like Postban. I mean, there are eight of those on Tyree, so oh, really? it's the Sandy Bay. Yeah. Um, but um, many of them have got much more. Interesting stories attached to them. Um, sometimes it's just a name. Sometimes there's a story that went along with that. I mean, for example, there's one Pulak Chlaune in Curlis, which is a, a lump of rocks of the McNeil family, and that was that's to do with uh, I think it's probably 16th century battle between the McNeils and, and the claims. I think, um, but essentially. A Baron McNeil had taken over Colv and the McLeans came back to get their birthright back and there was a big battle, battle in the Battle of Gunai and they, the defeated McNeils flew, fled, they rode back across um, the Gunner Sound and then spent the night under a boat on um, Postnor building, the harbour of the galley and hmm. then they were massacred the next morning and their bones were put under this big um, pile of stones. So, those, I mean, that's a fairly ancient story that's yeah. unusual to get something that um, that long ago but the ones obviously that have been most in, that are the most or the were the most interesting and obscure the ones that made absolutely no sense and yes. some, some like Cornick there's a Cornick in uh, in Cornwall as well which is Cornvik which is the, the harbour of the or the inlet of Corn it's a, it's a Norse name so that's oh. fairly transparent but there is a number of other ones that were much more complicated and I, and I realised you know, fairly recently, after after collecting place names for a long time, and I, I the the Ordnance Survey collected about six hundred and fifty place names, which was a lot. They mapped Tyree in great detail because it was so widely cultivated. Yeah. Um, but I I collected over three three thousand three hundred place Whoa. place names, and that's just a I'll say a fraction. There were large bits of the island that were em- that were empty. I mean, yeah. That's not that's not a lot of place names. I'm sure. 
originally there would have been five or six thousand place names on yeah, the Tyree. Totally. Because so every every space had a function. Yep. And certain you can see certain parts of the island are uh, are fairly empty of place names where they were cleared and and that's all that traditional knowledge has gone to Canada and has never been replaced. That's fascinating. So there, there were a lot, I got a lot of place names that I thought one day about five years ago, when no one else is really analysing, I should sit down and really go through these difficult ones that don't seem to mean anything and find out what they were. And so that's when I started to become interested in, in Viking place names. And I found that almost all the ones that don't make sense are originally Norse. And that's really, that study is, has taken over my life really. I've spent Brilliant. several years analysing the Viking occupation of Tyree and I, I, I'm pretty confident that the results are robust. I'm, the, there's no doubt the Vikings were here for a long time yeah. and settling the whole island and there um, when the Gales resettled the island in the 16th century, mainly from Mull, the Norse speakers and the Gaelic speakers lived side by side for a considerable time. One or two hundred years is quite quite plausible. So that that is place names that suggested that to me, and I think that's that's really I'm able now to tell the story of Tyree from the time of the Viking settlement, eight hundred and fifty something like that, to thirteen hundred. And are there any? Personal names that come out of that at all, are, and, and as part of like, like um, you know, Eric's Bay or anything like that, are there any character names that you can you found reference to in that as opposed to just geographical topographical features? Mm, absolutely, that, that's that's a quite surprising thing because usually Norse, you don't tend to get many personal names in Orkney, for example. No, um, and it's thought to be a sign of. Very rapid settlement. You find it in, York, in Yorkshire. <laughs> <Mine>. <laughs> yeah. So places where the Norse settled completely rapidly, then they had to think up a lot of names yeah. very quickly. Release yeah. Hill. In fact, yeah. the fact that it's, um, yeah, there's a uh, there's a place in the Lake District called Alpha. Uh, where they've got a very good village hall um, and they do concerts. And I went to see a concert there, a Martin Simpson concert, and it was uh, it's either Uli's Hill or Wolf Hill, Alva. On in Mull is yeah. either Uli's Island or Wolf Island. That's right. So yeah, yes, we've got a few. All of, we've got a postal all over, um, just opposite that. And yeah, there's lots of personal names in Barstel, Bartha, um, Bjorn, Aniel is Einar's uh, uh, Hill. So yeah, I, I've, I'm pretty sure I've, I can give you thirty. Viking settlers' names from that's amazing. Name. Yeah, so you can that really. I mean, they, they weren't all at the beginning of because the you know the Norse were settling here for four hundred years. I mean, they may have come at any time during that, but essentially, you've got someone's personal name who who had a farm in that spot. I mean, that's that's a to me that sends tingles up and down my spine. Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. It's human history, and uh, yeah, and interestingly, the. If you go to Shetland and Orkney, where they, where it was Scots speakers that took over from the Norse, the names have been really mangled. Really, um, and it's really it's often very hard to make sense of them. Whereas here, it's they're much more transparent, uh, and it seems that because Gaelic and Norse were so different, that they, the Norse names have been preserved, you know, pretty cleanly. Um, so it, it does give you a, a very interesting window into a long time ago and that's really led me to the, the where I am at the moment which is that the Tyree has been a, has been invaded a, a lot I mean we they tend to think of all the islands of the Hebrides as being so Gallic heartlands and that's that's really has stretched into deep history but in fact when you when you look at who's lived here it's just been a wave after wave of invasion if it wasn't it wasn't the the Picts and then the Dalbiadans yeah. and then uh the Norse and then the Gales and different clans within the Gales were displacing each other, the Dougals and the Maclean's and McDonald's and then the Campbells and now essentially in the English Cultural Revolution. So it, it's been I think the history of Tyree is much more unsettled and are much less pure than we like to think. But um that's that's what I think at the moment anyway. 
on Sunday there, Jack and Jen uh, and Gracie, friends who live uh, near the ferry, took us to the Broch for the first time. I'd never been to the Broch at all here. That's absolutely remarkable. Did you? And then they talked about the Ringing Stone that was beyond that. I've not been to the Ringing Stone yet. What is the Ringing Stone? What's what's the part of the feature? I've spent part of last night looking it up on YouTube and going, my gosh, but how, how, how do you relate to it? What, what do you feel about it in terms of the context of the island, its history, and is it a feature of the pre-Pictish people? What's... Yeah, that's a good question, because I think we've got some answers now. Which wow. I didn't have a few weeks ago. Huh. The, the I think the Ringing Stone is you know, it's generally known by all of everyone who lives here as a sort of a very special place. If anyone came to Tyree, almost everyone would say you should go to the Ringing Stone as one of the sort of must-see Empire State Building places. Yeah. It's quite isolated. It's a 40-minute walk to get there. Um, so it's not something you drive past every day. It's really between two townships on the north shore of the island. And it lies in a, just, just on the shoreline on a rocky platform it's a rock the size the size of a mini car sort of that sort of size you can climb up on top um so it's not so, it's not huge it's uh, a, a glacial erratic so it's rock that doesn't come from the island it's quite clearly a different sort of rock to the lewisian nice it's a lithophone so when you hit it it makes a really loud ring and so it's a very and that's a quite an unusual thing there are lithophones elsewhere but this is a particularly good one i think its position lends it a sort of mysterious air the fact that it's a stranger amongst us um, the fact that it emits this extraordinary sound when you when you hit it is um i think it's natural for everyone to feel that sort of magical uh, entry point into the spirit world and um it's got a lot of very deep cuts. They counted fifty-three, but in fact, it's got so it's got more than that. We counted more the other the other week. It's got some very clear cut markings, which are shallow depressions the size of a palm, and these are found on twenty-three rocks on the island. There's two there's two clusters of them, which a group discovered uh, really last year, um, and so rock, rock art. Terry's got it's got a very interesting. A very important collection of rock, of rock art, and and it's interesting because it's Neolithic. I mean, it's it's it's, it's pretty much the oldest thing on Tyree. This is it's a very it's the oldest cultural manifestation construct on on, yeah. on the island. But the interesting so that these are found on on sort of rock outcrops in around the stone circle, which is in in um, in Ho. But the interesting about the uh, the cut markings in, on the ringstone, so they're not prehistoric, they're much more modern than that. They've been, and you quite clearly see, pretty well everyone that goes there takes up a stone and grinds it. Doesn't just knock it to make a sound, but they go to the cut marking and they grind it around a few times. And some of the cut markings now are the size of a grapefruit, I mean, or bigger than that, I mean, they're, they're huge, they're not symmetrical any longer. And they've quite clearly been created by people in modern times, now, now that might be Vikings. I mean, it, that's, we're not talking about tourists here. We're talking about quite a long time ago. And um, if you look at Blau's map from 1654, you see the Gallic medieval Gallic name is Coyafion Machkul, which is the amphitheater or the Cora. Um, it's a sort of Cori. Uh, it's like a sort of cup. Yeah. A, a, it's not so much the cup in the stern, which people I think oh, have thought, but it's a placement. Yes, it's a sort of amphitheatre in which it rests. Um, and Fionnmacu is the is the Irish Fingalian... Um, Big old Finn. Yep. So the, these stories, which originated, I think, in the ninth century, I mean, they're, they're extremely early, came to came to Scotland around the 14th century, and they... This, from Ireland. From Ireland, yep. So uh, this stone was a, a very important cultural... Shrine, or some ways, or, or, or place where mysterious things happened um, in the 15th century. Um, so you can see this stone has had an important place in Tyree culture for 6,000 years for, to different peoples and who've used it differently and and more well, completely uni uniquely in Scotland. They they've taken this prehistoric cut markings and they've made their own. They've they've gouged them out even. 
even more. I mean, it's not vandalism because they were they were relating to. It. We had this interesting conversation with Tersha Barnett, who's the who's the director of the Scottish Rock Art Project, and I asked her, you know, should should we put a a, um, a fence around this and say, please don't touch this because it's obviously your this prehistoric monument's being defaced, and she very much felt that people should touch it and it is part of their culture and it belongs to them and yeah. they, they should do what they want with it and if they want to make these cut markings bigger or, or more personalize them in some way then that's what they should do because that's the living culture it's a living culture but it, i mean it's in some ways that what was essentially an extraordinary prehistoric monument has been completely vandalized or completely changed by succeeding people so that it's a it's not only is it extraordinary, it's probably it's by far the most interesting cut marking cut mark stone in Scotland, but it's also got this much more recent history which is we don't understand that, but it's it's had an importance to a lot of other peoples and it still exerts this mag- magnetism on, on, on visitors today. So the the Tari Ringstone is really a very important part of our, our lives. Thank you so much, John. As ever, it was just great to spend time with you. Cheers. Tyree is a magical island. It's got so much going on. It's a working island and hasn't made many of the concessions that larger islands have to tourism, which I think is great. Although there are many wonderful places to stay and dozens of things to see and do, it's an island that doesn't derive the majority of its income from tourism, but has it as part of a more diverse package of economic activities, it seems to me. This weekend coming sees Tyree Music Festival, which I've never made it to. I must try and catch it sometime. There's loads of cracking bands in it this year. I'm quite jealous. As I said earlier, I was there to work at the Tyree Fish, where I was delivering filmmaking workshops in Gaelic. If you want to introduce your children to Gaelic culture, the Fish movement is the very thing. It's the very dab. There are Fishing throughout the nation, and they cover all sorts of disciplines, from piping to accordion, clarsach, guitar singing, whistle, drama, and even filmmaking. The tutors are all professionals in their discipline who are committed to inspiring young people to get further into culture. I love it. The sessions and Kayleys at the Tidy Face are particularly enjoyable. As ever, more information and links can be found on whatwedointhewinter.com <laughs> Hello, Spaniel. If you want to support the podcast, you can do so by donating via PayPal or Patreon. You'll find the details on the website underneath the Donate tab. I do this entirely for free because I think it really matters, and any support you can offer is much appreciated. If you want to leave a review on whichever platform you listen to the podcast on, I'd be very grateful, as the more reviews and ratings there are, the more people can hear these stories and and join us in our adventures together. Ah, midges. Thank you to those of you who reach out to say hello and pass on more information about Bits and Bobs too. It's always lovely to hear from you. I'm actually on holiday on Colonsy next week, so I'm hopeful to record an episode or two there. I'll be back next week, most likely, with another episode from Tyree. I look forward to sharing it with you then. Thanks so much for listening. I look forward to speaking to you again soon. Shenakate. Morantang. Midges.